Well, brothers and sisters, if you were here last Wednesday night, you were blessed to hear four different preachers, and the last of those four preachers was Nathan Swanson. Nathan Swanson is from the Bible Church in Port Washington. Before Nathan Swanson was the pastor there, they had a pastor named Kevin Vigneault. Kevin Vigneault has since moved to Wisconsin and has been serving at Lakewood Baptist Church in what town in Wisconsin? Pewaukee. Pewaukee. All the Wisconsin towns sound like that, but all the letters get mixed up. Uh, if you are from Wisconsin and have traveled here to be with us tonight, can you please stand so we can see where you are around the room? Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for being here. You can be seated. Uh, I know that it's been raining, and so when people got here, they kind of rushed into the building. But before you go, as you drive through the parking lot on the way out, just take a look at how beautiful it is. Our building was taken care of, the yard, the parking lot, uh, the children's area for the nursery school. All the weeds were pulled. All the stuff was swept and cleaned, and all the leaves were blown away. Uh, the, the folks from Wisconsin came and really served us really faithfully and very well today, but they're not done. Uh, no, we request blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, so tonight, uh, they are also serving. Uh, some of the folks that do children's ministry there at their church are doing children's ministry now for us tonight and serving our kids and teaching them the Word of God. And so we're allowed to have our, our folks that normally serve have a break tonight as those from Wisconsin are caring for them. And I told them that is such a big blessing to me, partially because most of the kids down there happen to be my kids. But... Um, <laughs> Praise God. Thank, thank you, team, for doing that. I know the ones who are doing that are currently downstairs, but everyone has done a great job. And now we're going to have also an incredible blessing from them where you are going to get to hear Kevin come and preach to us and teach to us about evangelism here in our context. And Kevin knows how to do that because he pastored here on Long Island. He served the Lord faithfully here as a good brother and a good friend to me. He is an excellent example of what uh, a father should be as a pastor and as a husband. And so I can tell you that, when he, that you have been blessed through him, even though you don't know him, most of you, because I've learned from him how to be a better father and how to be a better husband and how to be a better pastor. So you have been blessed already, but now you're going to be even more blessed as he comes and brings to you the word of God. Kevin, can you come and share what the Lord's brought to your heart? I'm afraid to touch this thing. Can I move it? <laughs> All right, well, good evening. I want to begin by saying it is such a joy and privilege to be with you all tonight. Uh, you all have been a blessing to me, whether you realize it or not. Uh, Pastor Caleb has been a tremendous friend to me, and Ashley and the kids are great friends to my wife and my kids. And uh, tonight is not about me in any way, but I do want to introduce myself briefly. Eleven years ago, my wife and I got married, and... Uh, on June 16th, 11 years ago, so 11 years and almost two weeks, and uh, we were already on deputation during that time, raising support to come to a mission field, or go to a mission field, and that mission field was New York City. And so almost 11 years ago now, 11 years ago next month, we moved to Manhattan and started working with a church plant there and spent about 15 months there. That was when Russell was born, our oldest uh, son, and we lived on the Lower East Side, we lived in Chelsea, then we moved out to Brooklyn and lived in Brooklyn for about five months and I commuted in by bike and it's a miracle I'm still alive. Uh, the yellow ones don't stop, right? That stays true. <laughs> And uh, then the Lord brought us back home to our sending church in New Hampshire for one year, 
and then one year to the week, I believe. It was quite uh, incredible, but like exactly one year. We spent one year with our sending church, and then the Bible Church of Port Washington called us, uh, just north of here, as you all would know, and spent four years working with a partner in ministry there. The Lord called him on to another ministry, and I took the past pastorate there for three years until Nathan came. And then it was in December a few years ago, now almost three years ago, I Facebook messaged the pastor out in Wisconsin, and I, uh, we are friends on Strava. Do you all know what Strava is? Good, like one of you. Excellent. All right, so Strava is an a exercise recording app, and you have friends kind of like Facebook or Snapchat, whatever people are into these days, right? And uh, you kind of get to see each other's exercises or runs and where you go and your times. And he had been running that day and said it was really windy. Well, I was biking that day, and I was biking in Long Island on the North Shore, so it was windy. And I messaged him and said, yeah, no kidding, it's windy. And I knew they were looking for a pastor at that time, and I very, very innocently, with no intentions whatsoever, asked, so how's your search going? And he said, well, we've actually got a really good candidate. We've got a good lead. So after he said that, I very jokingly said, yeah, I was thinking about throwing my hat in the ring for that. And then he asked me if I would. And I immediately said no. And I, I said to Liz as she walked by that day, I still remember in our bedroom, I was studying in a chair. And I said, Pastor Dave asked if we'd submit a resume for Lakewood. And she goes, Wisconsin, never in a million years. <laughs> and of course, once she said that, then of course we knew we were going, right? <laughs> and and uh, the Lord led, and one of the first people, one of the first people I spoke to for counsel and wisdom was Pastor Caleb. I remember calling him asking, can we go get Indian food? And of course he said yes, and uh, talked with him. And the Lord led through many different counselors. Pastor Steve or Steve Schultz is a tremendous blessing and friend to me. Uh, I've preached many times at the school where he's principal, and he's also preached quite a few times at the Bible church on my behalf when I was sick or traveling. And uh, just so thankful for you all and your church here and what God is doing. All that to say, uh, when I was called to Lakewood Baptist Church in, in Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee, it was Pewaukee. Yes, they all sound the same. Uh, I was called as pastor of evangelism, pastor of outreach. And here in New York, I wore many hats. I was the youth pastor and the preaching pastor and the music pastor and the maintenance pastor, if there's such a thing, right? And uh, was, was very stretched thin. And one tremendous blessing of being in Wisconsin is I have been able to focus on a great passion of mine from God, which is evangelism, outreach. So whenever a church asks me if I would spend some time in the Word preaching to them, I can't think of anything else that I'd rather run to than evangelism and uh, encouraging people in it and being able to explain to them and hopefully teach them some of the truths that God has been working on in my life over the last two years as I've been able to just pour almost 100% of my time and energy into evangelism, listening to podcasts, reading books, and doing it and of course studying the scriptures. So let's open in prayer, and then we're going to jump in to this. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you so much for this opportunity to be together with a sweet church family here. Lord, we know that this is a spiritual desert. Nassau County has many, many people, many lost souls, but we trust that you have many people in the city. Would you encourage this church family to persevere to continue shining as a bright light to the dark community around them and sharing the gospel both corporately as a church and individually 
as they're in their neighborhoods and in their workplaces. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is, again, a, a, just a blessing to be back in New York, and I know a few of you, of course, Pastor Caleb, Ashley, Henry, and Pastor Steve, and others, and what I absolutely love about traveling is meeting other believers, and you can be as different as possible. This past fall, I was in South Sudan, country that's only 12 years old, roughly, and very, very poor, and yet just instantly uh, meeting believers and instantly having a connection with them and a love for them. And we could be as different as possible, right? South Sudan to New York City to Wisconsin. You all like cream cheese. We like cheese curds. We like gluten-free bread. You guys like bagels, right? And I feel weird saying you guys were sweet because I still feel like a New Yorker. I'm not going to say we on this. Wisconsin likes Chicago deep dish. We like real pizza, amen? <laughs> we liked Aaron Rodgers. Now you're stuck with Aaron Rodgers, right? <laughs> but all these differences, we drink coffee, you all drink coffee, right? We are joined together by a common foundational core truth, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. This unity is a beautiful thing. It binds us, it connects us, it produces a love for one another, and it gives us a common goal, and that is the furtherance of the good news to those who have not heard it yet or believed it yet. And now I mentioned Aaron Rodgers and joking, but if any of you have played sports or you are sports fans, you know how vital it is for a sports team to be on the same page, to have the same game plan, to use the same tactics. I'm a soccer fan or as the world calls it, football fan. And I enjoyed watching highlights from Paris Saint-Germain. If any of you know anything about soccer, you have three of the better soccer players ever on the same team at the same time. You had Lionel Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe. Now, I don't like Mbappe or Neymar, but they're good players, right? But you have three incredible players, three of the best players in the world, and they're playing on the same team, and they scored incredible goals. The highlights were incredible. But you know what? They actually didn't have an incredible season. Why is that? Well, you could argue that even though individually they had incredible talent, they didn't function as a team as they could have. Well, as a church family, we want to function as a team. It doesn't matter if we don't have the great talent, right? What makes a church strong is following after Christ as a unified body. What makes a church effective in ministry is following after Christ as a unified body. So I want your church to be a church that is full of effective evangelists together. And in order for that to happen, it helps to be on the same page. It helps to have the same tactics, to be working together. So I want to just go through a few brief principles tonight of what makes an effective evangelist. What makes an effective evangelist? And number one is very simple, and you might go, well, duh, Pastor Kevin, if this is the message, I'm not too excited. But we got to start here. Doesn't that make sense? Like, if you want to be an effective evangelist, you must be doing what? Evangelism. 
right? We must be convicted that we must all preach the gospel. Do you understand this, that it's not just Pastor Caleb's job to preach the gospel? It's not just the other elders in the church, their job to preach the gospel, or the deacons to preach the gospel, or those who are gifted to preach the gospel. No, actually, every single follower of Jesus Christ is called to preach the gospel. Now, you may not be able to step up into the pulpit and preach the gospel, but you're able to preach it to your neighbors and your coworkers and your relatives and people on the street. D.A. Carson recounts Dr. Paul Hubert. He springs from a Mennonite stock and analyzes his heritage in this fashion. One generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything for them. We must never forget that a gospel-preaching church could be but one or two generations from forgetting the gospel, denying the gospel. Carson continues, Today there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another, abortion, pornography, homeschooling, economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version, and, and countries have a full agenda of urgent peripheral demands. Not for a moment am I suggesting we should not think about such matters or throw out our weight behind some of them. But when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? May I ask then, if somebody were to bring up your name to a friend, is the first thought that they have about you Norwex cleaning products or essential oils or a political party or a certain style of music or this or that or is the first thing that they think of a love for Jesus Christ and the gospel. We are each called to be preaching the gospel and in order to preach the gospel effectively we need to love it and keep it central. So how do we counteract this? Well, we take responsibility. We take responsibility. It must also never be forgotten that a church naturally is dying. Do you recognize that? That this week, this Wednesday, even from Sunday, you are closer to certain individuals passing away from within your congregation. You are closer to certain individuals moving away. You're closer to certain individuals just leaving or denying the faith and leaving the church. In other words, just like our physical bodies, the body of each local assembly on this planet, each of them are headed towards death, naturally, in a sense. But there is great hope because we're called to do what? Preach the gospel and trust that God will save souls and continue to add them to the church. If a church is not growing, it is dying. And each of you in these chairs this evening, I almost said this morning, got to get used to preaching at night. Each of you this evening has the responsibility to be sharing the gospel. Take responsibility. Be convinced that the Christian is for you to fulfill.
First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five could say a second great commission is in verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are made anew. And the, one of the main purposes for which Christ has saved you is for you to now go share the gospel with others. Period. There is no legitimate excuse for a believer to not be actively sharing the gospel. It's not just our responsibility, though. We need to consider that it's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's stemming from Jesus' example in Matthew 9, verse 2. He says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You know, it's interesting when churches try to become relevant and reach more people, they seem to almost take the gospel off of center stage and replace it with entertainment or healing, so-called healing, and other things to draw attention. And they say, well, Jesus healed people, but Jesus' first priority was actually what? He came to save sinners. And when they bring this paralytic to him, the first thing he addresses is his sin. Not the fact that he can't walk. The reason allows him to walk is to teach those around him that he is the Messiah. And has the authority to forgive sins. Consider him at the with the woman at the well. He went and he approached her a certain way. In Nicodemus, or in... in uh, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he talks to him and encourages him, tells him that he must be born again. Think about the way he responds to the young, selfish, selfish, self-righteous lawyer in Luke 10 by conversing through the parable of the good Samaritan. See, Jesus is a wonderful example for us in evangelism, not just in doing it, but knowing, point number two, where to start and how to proceed. See, I'd encourage you, if you're not sharing the gospel, go out and do it. But be equipped for it. Now, don't let that be an excuse. I've talked with many people who go, well, I'm not doing evangelism because I'm, I don't know everything that I should yet. You will never know everything that you should. <laughs> right? Get out there. Start. But consider how to do it. So... I would say, stemming from Jesus' Jesus' example, the points that I just made, he approached the woman at the well far differently than he talked to the self-righteous lawyer. And he talked with Nicodemus differently. Why? Because Jesus knew people and he cared about them and he met them where they were at. 
Why? They all had different worldviews. The woman at the well wanted to discuss where worship should take place. And she knew she was a sinner. Nicodemus seemed legitimately open, if not apprehensive. And the lawyer thought that he was righteous and justified himself. So Jesus worked with them in different ways. And so I want to introduce you to an idea that is not, not original with me. I heard it from another, I think, in a podcast. Unfortunately, I can't remember where I actually heard it. But then I, I worked on it and developed it more myself. But it's something I call starting points. Starting points. And it's when you're having a conversation with somebody, asking questions and getting to know them to the point where you know where they're coming from. All right, so can we have a little interaction tonight? Is that all right? It's Wednesday night, some interaction. All right, somebody tell me, in order for somebody to be saved, there are five things, I would say, that they must know and believe. Somebody name one. Yeah. Okay, so the person of Christ, an introduction to Christ. Let's stick on that point. Christ would be one point, I'd say, one of the subpoints under Christ would be his resurrection. If he rose from the dead, the implication is what, obviously? He, he died. Good. Now, is it just enough to know that there was a man named Jesus that was crucified and risen from the dead? Or do we, should we understand what? His, his identity. Yeah, his deity. Wrapped up in his identity is his deity, the fact that he's sinless, right? And that he was an atonement for our sins as a perfect sacrifice, risen from the dead. So there's one point. That, I'll give you, is point number four. We've got three before it. Yeah. Good, yeah. So more on his deity is this, that he is actually man, he's in flesh, and he's God. God in human flesh. Yeah, there we go. So we are sinners. You can't get to the good news without covering the bad news. All right, so we are sinners under that. So... I'd say the seriousness and the penalty of our sin. That's point three. All right, we still need one and two. Once I say it, you're, or somebody says it, it's going to be like, that's obvious. That's the identity under Christ. Yeah. Repentance, that's response. Good. So that's number five, a proper response. Here you go, guys. I'll let it out. There's a God. Right? There's a God. <laughs> right? So that's point number one. Right? So point number one would be simply the existence of a holy creator God. Right? And point number two is kind of a, a sandwich between point number one and point number three. It's this. We are creation of this creator God, and we have accountability to him. That's the foundation for the fact of point number three is what? We're sinners. So these are the five points that somebody must understand. There is a God. He's holy. He's the creator. Genesis 1.1 assumes it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can I encourage you with a quick illustration? It might be helpful in evangelism. If you're ever talking about the existence with, of God with somebody and they are denying it, ask them if they have an iPhone or a Samsung. And it helps if they have the same type of phone as you. So I have an iPhone. iPhone users? All right. Yes. Godly people here. All right. So... <laughs> We all hold out our iPhones. Now, in this room, we would not have to argue with somebody that there is an iPhone factory somewhere on the planet, right? Why? Because we all have iPhones. That is the argument. 
Very simply, look around this room. What is filling this room? Creation. Therefore, there must be a creator, period. So number one, the existence of a holy creator God. Number two, we are accountable to him as his children, as his creation. Sorry, yeah, as his creation. Number three, therefore, is the seriousness of our sin. We have fallen short of our created purpose, and there is a penalty for our sin, which is the wages of sin is? A plus. All right, number four, Jesus then, you introduce Jesus. He is the sinless son of God. He's crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. And then we must present to them the proper response, which is sole dependence upon Christ's salvific work. So where are we going with all this? Well, Early on in in my walk with Christ, God graciously gave me a burden for evangelism. And when I would go out on Saturday mornings with a group of teens from my church and we'd hand out tracts and share the gospel, most people that I talked to only about 16, 17 years ago, when I began talking with them, where do you think their starting point was? Typically on number three. They already believed that there was a creator or a God And they understood that they were a creation underneath him. And they typically understood that they were sinners. But now, when we walk down the street, where are most people that we meet? Say number one. They're just denying the existence of God. There are generally more atheists. There are... Uh, people who maybe understand that there's a God, but because of postmodernism and even progressing past postmodernism, just like anything is okay, right? And so I'm going to talk with somebody like that far differently than I'm going to talk with somebody who already understands they're a sinner. It's the same message, but it's a far different what? Starting point. So, in order to be an effective evangelist, or to help you be an effective evangelist, I would strongly encourage you, consider starting points and ask yourself, where is this person so I can meet them where they're at and actually get them to where they need to be in their understanding of the gospel? Once we know where their starting point is, we need to wisely choose how to proceed. Amelia's birthday was just this past Sunday. My daughter, she turned eight years old, so she got to go to church and then drive halfway across the country. It was a great birthday. But as we were using wrapping paper, we weren't using wrapping paper for her gifts from Christmas time. That would not be fitting. And we weren't using blue wrapping paper or Star Wars wrapping paper. No, if we were wrapping presents for Amelia and we could just choose any wrapping paper, it would be full of unicorns and princesses and and baby dolls because that's what my daughter is all about. Well, in the same way we wrap presents for certain occasions, in a certain way, I would propose this, that the gospel message never changes, not one jot nor tittle. But the wrapping paper can match the occasion. We don't wrap birthday presents in Christmas paper. And so when you're presenting the gospel to somebody, and this goes hand in hand with starting points, you consider who the person is that you're talking to, and you actually do what? You present it in a way in which they can understand. So, real quick, if somebody is, uh, they, they are really happy with themselves. I spoke with a lady just last night, and she told me, I have never once sinned in my entire life. So how am I going to present the gospel to her? 
heavy on law, right? So I'm going to be sharing the gospel with her with a law theme, heavy on law and sin, before getting to grace and mercy. She doesn't need to hear about grace and mercy yet. She needs to hear about condemnation. But what about, uh, you know, somebody who says on the street, I have sinned so much, God could never and never would save me. You ever meet somebody like that? So now how am I sharing the gospel with them? Well, I'm going on a redemption theme, maybe heavy on grace, convincing them that Christ actually can and wants to save them, that he is sufficient. Right? Maybe somebody who's never heard anything from scripture before. Do we jump right into the substitutionary atonement? No, we share the gospel using a big picture, walking them through the storyline of scripture. So we must know where to start and how to proceed, but we also must make sure that we share the whole message. You could be the most eloquent and persuasive speaker on the planet, but unless you are sharing the whole gospel, it falls short. So point number three, we must present the whole gospel. And don't worry, I'm going to move faster. <laughs> so how do we know what the whole gospel is? Again, I want to go to Jesus Christ. What did Jesus make sure was taught? And something that I've been studying, I studied the book of Mark recently, and it's interesting to see Mark is really split into two sections, you could say. Mark chapters one through eight, you see a bunch of miracles, or what we could, we would, I like to call signs. Why? Because Jesus was doing miracles to show that he was the Messiah. And you have this, this flip in the book. In Mark chapter eight, you have a very interesting account. Everybody familiar with the blind man that's brought to Jesus? He takes him, and he takes him out of town, right? He takes him out of town, and it's just him with the blind man and the disciples. And he goes to heal the blind man, and he says, how'd it go? And the blind man says, well, I see, but the men look like trees. And then he tries a second time, and then the man sees clearly. Now, what happened? Did, like, Jesus run out of magic juice or something like that, right? No. Did Jesus mess up the, the formula? No, he was doing it for a reason. He was trying to teach his disciples something, and immediately following this account, he goes to his disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, the prophet. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it says, and immediately Jesus began teaching them that the Son of Man would be crucified, buried, and rise three days later. And in fact, if I'm, my memory is serving me correctly, it happens in chapter 8, or chapter 9, I think that's right at the turn of the chapter. But chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, and one of those has two times in it. And what's interesting as he's doing that, the first time he says it, Peter's response is what? No, God, or no, Jesus, Right? And he says, get, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking about the things of man. Then it's after the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're coming down off the mountain, and Jesus is telling the, the disciples with him that he is going to be crucified, buried, and rise from the dead. And then they're like, hey, by the way, can I be first or second in your kingdom? And they're just missing it. What do you think is happening to them? Well, he just illustrated it. You're seeing, but you're not yet seeing what? clearly. And so Jesus clearly taught his identity in the first half of Mark, and then it switches. Once his disciples get his identity, he shifts to what? His mission. And so to share the whole gospel, obviously there's more pieces to it, 
but really we're presenting Christ in all that he is. Both his identity that we've already covered. He is God in human flesh. He's sinless. He's righteous. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose from the dead. It is both who he is and what he did. And you can't have one without the other. If he wasn't the sinless son of God, then his death meant nothing. But if he was the sinless son of God who just lived a righteous life on earth and didn't die for our sins, then his life would have meant nothing. But when they go hand in hand, it means everything. It means eternal life for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. So you see, we must present the whole gospel to people. Do not hold back. Do not fall into the temptation and the cultural, the Christian cultural vibes of holding things back and not being offensive. No, there is only one gospel. Our, our teaching pastor at Lakewood shares a story. He was invited to a seminary down the road from our church to teach a class on church planting. Not like a whole class, but one session. And he started off very simply, preach the gospel. That's how you start a church. Preach the gospel. Because a church is what? Gospel believers. And so he taught the gospel to this class. And a seminary student training for ministry raises his hand and he says, I don't like your gospel. It's too bloody. And you know what the response was? And it's perfect. It's the only gospel. It's not mine. It's God's. And it's the only one. We must share the gospel. Paul? He says in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. So we see clearly what Paul viewed as the gospel. And we must say alongside of him, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we must not change it. We need not change it. It is imperative that we preach all of it. Number four, as we share the gospel, we must remember that we are sharing the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is not about us. We must be able to say alongside of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Children's book, I believe, the bunches love it too, as much as we do. The Green Ember. Yeah, The Green Ember is a, a wonderful book and similar to uh, like the Chronicles of Narnia, in a sense, allegorical. And there is a family in this where these young rabbits learn of a traitorous uncle. And they ask questions about him, and they say, what happened to him? And their good uncle responds with this. He was more concerned with his place in the kingdom than with the king. He was more concerned about what he accomplished than with how he accomplished it. We must, we must, as we share the gospel, point to the glory of Christ. We must not get so concerned with the work of the kingdom that we lose sight of the king of the kingdom. Paul gives an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
He was all about Christ. So we, too, are calling others to behold the glory of Christ. John chapter 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what evangelism is. We're just calling other people to come and behold the glory of Christ and see him for who he is and what he's done. So present Christ in all his glory. Consider Peter's message in Acts. The listeners hit with the weight of their sin and the glorious identity of Jesus and his death responded with, what must we do to be saved? He didn't even tell them, you must be saved. He simply presented Christ in all his glory. And their response was, what must we do to be saved? I want to transition to two very practical steps for our last two points as we close. Number five. Brothers and sisters, just be bold and willing to expose the world's faulty thinking. Don't fear loving confrontation. Now, in Wisconsin, this is very applicable. In New York, we're not very afraid of confrontation. (laughs) Often are we. I told our folks as we drive into New York, if somebody cuts you off, just honk your horn and yell, I'm driving here, right? (laughs) But brothers and sisters, I think we can all struggle with holding back when we're talking with unbelievers. Ask thoughtful questions. Jesus repeatedly used questions to confront poor thinking by individuals. In Mark chapter 10, someone comes to him and says, he kneels before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Now, This man, little did he know, he was proper in addressing Jesus as good, but he wasn't addressing Jesus as God. So immediately Jesus runs straight to the heart of the gospel and he confronts this man with his wrong thinking. And he points him to the truth later on. He says, sell all that you have if you think you're perfectly righteous and follow me. But the man went away disheartened saying, thinking that he had great possessions. He had the greatest possession right in front of him, but he went away with earthly possessions. One man, Greg Kalkel, who wrote a book called Tactics, which is extremely helpful, encourages us to leave pebbles in their shoe. When you have a conversation with somebody, leave them with some sort of truth that's just going to bug them, and hopefully they bring it back up the next day when you see them. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And lastly, I thought about rewriting my notes after, brother, what you said up here, but I couldn't. So, number six, build relationships. Now, I know I'm not, not uh, going against what you said, and I completely agree with what you said, but I'm going to tweak it, and I have more time than you do. So, it helps. <laughs> but very simply, in our time and culture, and as we considered starting points, we can't think that after sharing the gospel one single time with someone, that all of a sudden our job is done. It may be that they pass away and we only get to have one interaction with them. It may be that we never see them again on this side of the planet and we don't get another opportunity with them. But evangelism is a marathon. It is a lifestyle. It is something that starts the moment you get saved and ends the moment you die. 
But between those two moments, you are called to be an evangelist. Acts 17.2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving what is necessary, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Later on in Acts, we hear of him going in six months, a year and a half, being in a town and developing roots and continually sharing the gospel and seeing churches established. So when one is indoctrinated by atheistic evolution, very often, I'm not, don't get me wrong here, I'm not lowering the power of the gospel in any way. But let me show something. Who here in this room, raise your hand if you believe the gospel after only hearing it one single time. Go ahead, raise it. Raise your hands. Three, four, five. Okay, five. Catch a little bit of a theme? Raise your hand if you had to hear the gospel more than once to be saved. I think I don't have to say anything more. When one is indoctrinated by atheistic evolution, do you think that they'll change their view through a two-minute conversation they have with someone that they don't know? to believe in creation? Probably not. When one has been taught their whole lives that Christians are heartless haters of sinners, do you think that a two-minute conversation will convince them otherwise, that you're actually a loving individual who's telling them that they're headed to hell? When one has been taught all their lives that all paths lead to heaven and everyone gets grace, do you think it will take more than a two-minute conversation to convince them that there is only one way and all other people will spend eternity in hell? See, we must recognize that God has placed us where we are with a purpose. Our lost family members, our lost neighbors, our lost co-workers, we build relationships with them, exactly to his point. And as we build relationships with them, we continue to share the gospel, not in a nagging way, but in a purposeful, careful, loving way, as long as we need to, and as long as they're open to it. Now, if they tell you, do not talk to me about this again, well, don't call them up the next day and say, I want to talk to you about it again. Show through your actions and your love. But I must disagree with one ancient or one man who said this once I can't remember who was but he said share the gospel at all times and if necessary use words no the only way the gospel is shared is through words they cannot call upon that him whom they've not believed and they cannot believe unless they have heard and they will not hear unless we preach so Build relationships by talking with people at the gym, at the coffee shop, at your kids' sports events. Shift your checkout lines to get to the same cashier each time. Go to the same coffee shop to get to know a certain barista. Build connections with people in the community in order to share the gospel. Keep your phone out of your face so you see people and talk with them. This is vital, especially in this day and age. And now I'm not lowering the importance of just going out and doing street evangelism in any way. Do that too. But don't ever do that to the neglect of the people that God has placed sovereignly right in your way. There are plenty of fish right in front of you that God has placed in front of you with a purpose. So brothers and sisters, as we close, have conviction to begin. Start 
doing evangelism. Know where to begin. Proceed with a plan. Learn the starting points. Have a clear gospel outline in your head and in your heart so that when you're placed under pressure, what comes out? The gospel. As you proceed, share the whole gospel. Never cut corners. Share the whole gospel with Christ's glory in mind. Always do it to the glory of Christ. Do it by building meaningful relationships as a church family. Do it together. Instead of having your lost neighbor over one night and then people from your community group or life group over the other night, have them over the same night and expose your lost neighbors to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do it together. Go to the park together, moms, and have your kids play with unsafe children and you talk with the other ladies and share the gospel together. Do it as a church family. Build meaningful relationships. You might not be the biggest church, the most gifted or talented church, but you can work as a team together, holding each other accountable with the same game plan to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.